0: Wrestling fans, this episode is brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. And gentlemen, if you have hair, this tool is for you. If you're like my friend Tom, who's hairless, he's like a seal, you don't need this product. But if you're like most of us and want to keep the family jewels up to snuff this summer, check out Manscaped. We've partnered with Manscaped and are now offering a 20% discount to podcast listeners Use the promo code WCML at checkout at manscaped.com.
1: I started judo in 2001. Free the Sunset was murdered in 2004. And then I had my first leg amputated in 2014. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection resilience toughness some guys have it some guys don't adversity 100 percent how to pick myself up and be a man after i failed and everything that has shaped my life and where i'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the the lessons i've learned through the sport of wrestling for me wrestling saved my life because it allowed me to focus and channel my energy we're fortunate if you wrestled, because if you wrestled, natural talent
0: helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling.
1: I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I good wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness.
0: Welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ryan Warner. Today we have a special guest, John Kuschinski. You've never heard his name in the national wrestling circuits, but this guy is a winner on multiple fronts, folks. He's blind. He has no feet, legs, or knees. and He's an active judo practitioner and former wrestler. Hope you enjoy this episode. A lot of inspiration hearing from our friend John Kuschinski. Fan of the week goes to my man Saul Polito. That's at wrestlers underscore poppy on the Instagram. The father to the great Blade Sisters, Kennedy and Karina Blades. Just found out that Saul's a listener of the show and we got to give a special thank you. Thank you, Saul Polito. We appreciate it. As always, folks, this episode is brought to you by Spartan Combat, Spartan Combat's Premier athlete Kyle Dake will be wrestling at the Olympics in just a few weeks. You can shop Kyle Dake Team USA merch right now at SpartanCombat.com. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for the great John Kuschinski. All right, sir. Thank you for doing this, John. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: It is an honor, my friend. I was reading through your bio a couple of times today, and it's it's crazy to read. So let's just take it from the top. Um, sure. Tell us about, uh, kind of your story and how, how things got going for you.
1: Well, uh, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm from a small town in um, Northern Michigan called Roger city. And, uh, that's where I was born and raised. And, uh, I guess like the first crazy event in my life that happened was at the age of 12. Uh, they found out I had a brain tumor. And, um, the good news is that it wasn't cancerous and it, and it was also operable. Um, the bad news is that after they operated, I was blind. Um, the tumor had created pressure within my cranium and, uh, the pressure was focused on my optic nerve and the blood flow was restricted to it. And so basically my optic nerve died. So my eyes are healthy, but the optic nerve that, you know, connects it to my brain and all, uh, is essentially dead.
0: So was that something they thought could happen coming out of the surgery?
1: They didn't really expect it at all. They thought they had caught it early enough and that everything would just, you know, kind of, you know, once the pressure was, was relieved, everything would kind of, you know, just be right back to normal. But that ended up not being the case. And uh, so I kind of woke up blind, kind of with no warning.
0: What was that experience like?
1: It was pretty intense. I was in denial for a while. Um, you know, I didn't really think I was blind because, you know, you were on. I was on all types of, you know, anesthesia at first, and then, you know, pain meds and everything else. And when you're that young, um, and I mean, even when you're an adult, but especially when you're that young, those drugs have a a pretty, uh, you know, profound effect on you. So then once I came out of that, I was just, you know, I thought it was a temporary thing. I thought that uh, I'd be blind for a while, but it definitely come back. But then, as time went on, I just realized, you know, this wasn't coming back and this was my new way of life. And so I had a choice was either get used to it and make the best of it, or you could sit around and feel, you know, sorry for yourself, which uh, I chose the former rather than the latter.
0: How'd you come to that at such a young age?
1: Basically, um, I had a, you know, a a really strong support system with my family and friends. And, it started out just with the fact that nobody really treated me any different. Um, you know, no one treated me like the poor blind kid. You know, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, you know, my friends expected me to keep up and just do the same things we were doing, and you know, my family never, uh, you know, never cut me short on what I was able to do. And uh, so, just having that kind of support really gives you the, uh, you know, the belief that you can you know, overcome this type of adversity and have, uh, you know, an independent, meaningful life.
0: Yeah. The support system. I, and like you said, everyone treating you the same, had to, had to be a nice relief you know, coming out of it. Cause obviously you were in such a, uh, you know, a different place mentally, uh, you're coming out of that. What was the, just, just curiosity. How? Like, what was the biggest thing to get used to, um, mm-hmm in terms of like being able to go to school and then participate in athletics and and things like that?
1: I mean, just everything. It was, I mean, starting over, you know, I had to learn to read Braille. I had to learn to, you know, travel independently as a blind person with, uh, you know, a cane um, daily living type, uh, daily living skills, as far as, you know, being able to, you know, make my own meals. And, you know, I mean, you're 12, so you're not really, you know,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but you know to get back on pace right and eventually to catch up with you know from there I had five years to catch up to get myself ready so that I could you know move out and go to college and be independent and so um basically just the day-to-day stuff um was uh the most difficult as as far as um you know initially just uh you know Mm -hmm. How to, you know, take care of yourself, how to shower, how to, you know, just be organized as someone who can't see and just, you know, how to, you know, really just exist and just, you know, uh, you know, just be independent that way.
0: And once you had adapted to that new life, where did you end up going to school at?
1: I went to Michigan State University um, and I studied mathematics.
0: And how did you find judo from there? Was it at Michigan state? Because I guess I should have asked first, did you wrestle or is it just judo that you're nope, engaged? I with? did
1: wrestle. Yep. I definitely wrestled. Um, I, Tell uh, me about wrestled, that. It was awesome. I uh, started wrestling. Um, I wanted to wrestle right out of, you know, I had brain surgery in um, December and I got out of the hospital in January. And then the junior high wrestling season started in March and I wanted to wrestle then, And they were like, no, you had too much head trauma. So you got to wait a year. So I waited a year and then in eighth grade I wrestled and uh I loved it. It was a lot of fun. Um where I'm from, uh we're a big wrestling town. So, you know, all my friends wrestled and you know it was it was uh as much a uh, you know social thing as it was, you know, I mean practice was fun because everybody was there. Mm-hmm. Um and we worked hard. And of course we had guys in high school that we looked up to who, you know, placed in state and, uh, you know, uh, we're doing really well. And, uh, so, I mean, it was awesome. And then in high school, uh, you know, being part of that team, we went to the, uh, team state tournament twice. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just an amazing experience. And like I said, I mean, you learn a lot. I mean, I'm I'm sure, as you know, uh, you know, the mindset you learned in wrestling, you know, that sticks with you. Um, you're not afraid to work hard. You're not afraid to grind it out. Uh, you know, wrestling kind of teaches you to be aware of the fact that, like, not everything is going to be easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that working for it feels good.
0: And it had to give um, you a leg up going into into judo because that that's where you met. Uh a gentleman by the name of Jeff Friedless, and that was a real life impacting event for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely it was. Um and uh I started judo basically because of the fact that like I wanted to do something that was like wrestling. Um and you know, Michigan State's a big ten school, and uh I wasn't I wasn't on par with those guys. <laughs> 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 and so um I wanted to find something that was like that, you know, that wasn't, you know, uh you know, lifting weights or going to the gym or, you know, something that was just, uh, more structured and more, um, kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, like a a, a more like, I don't, I don't know how I want to say it. Like, uh, you know, like more of a group activity, I guess is what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know with the gym you can say oh, i'm gonna lift weight at six o'clock and six o'clock rolls around you are going to do it at eight and then you end up not doing it the nice thing about wrestling judo is that you need a partner to do it so you have to go when that activity is and you know saying you know you need a mat and most of us don't have well i mean a lot of people do have wrestling rooms now but i certainly didn't um and so uh it was a lot of fun that way and then i you know uh really liked the people that I was training with. And, uh, I did meet, that is where I met Jeff Friedliss, uh, who was a big impact on me. He was, um, one of the senior students in class in uh, judo when I first met him. And then he later, uh, ended up taking over the school. And, uh, I, uh, I studied with him for about three years before he was, uh, unfortunately murdered. How did that all come about? Well, there was uh, a young lady in class, and uh, her boyfriend got it in her head that you know there was you know uh, something romantic going on between her and uh, Jeff Friedliss, who was now Friedliss Sensei. You know, one of the you know the head instructor of mm-hmm. Judo, and um, he came to the dojo one day and uh, shot Friedliss Sensei twice, and then shot himself once. I know I just I mean when I say it out loud it doesn't even like it still doesn't even sound real it's just too crazy of a story and I mean this was in our dojo that was across the street from MSU like you know there's not murders in East Lansing East Lansing's a college town I mean you can walk up and down the street any time of day. um, You know, uh, it it doesn't matter at all. I mean, it's completely safe all the time. It's absolutely nothing to worry about. And then something as wild as that happens. Mm. And then not only that, like something that wild happens, but then, you know, you're personally connected to that. You know, that was a, you know, personally, you know, a dear friend of mine at that point. And, and you had uh, said
0: you weren't even there that day, randomly, no, like all days.
1: Yeah, I didn't go that day. Um, you know, I was actually uh, in the process of like moving rooms in my fraternity house. And uh, I had somebody to help me that day. And so I was moving rooms. And so I just missed class. And then, uh, we, you know, later that day, we were actually driving down the street. And my friend told me, he's like, you know, Kind of down the way from our dojo was a bank, and my buddy's like, Man, we got to turn off here because it's all tape. You know, there's like crime scene tape by the bank. I wonder if somebody tried to rob it or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, found out the next day that there was a shooting at the dojo and Freeless Sensei was murdered. And, uh, you know, probably one of the most profound experiences of my life. Uh, you know, one, I mean, one of the main reasons that uh, you know i continued uh, practicing judo for you know 15 or 16 consecutive years after that right up until you know covid-19 which it, you know has kind of interrupted everybody's training right um but yeah he he was uh he was an amazing guy uh
0: what did he like, how, why did he impact you so much like what about him
1: i guess just because you know, as much as he beat us up on the mat, off the mat, he was, you know, that nice to us. And you knew that he cared about you and he cared about your development as a person and that, um, he was going to push you. And that was going to be the way that he was going to help you develop as a person help you realize who you were. And, um, he definitely did push us on the mat and, uh, you know, was just an overall good person off the mat. Like uh, I remember, for example, one time I hadn't been to judo in a class or two and I showed up and he said, where you been? I was like, man, there's a lot of snow and it takes me longer to travel and, you know, with class and everything. And he's like, you know, just let me know. I'll come pick you up. And, you know, that was just really cool. You know what I mean? It's not his responsibility to come get me, but,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, he offered to, and, you know, just small things like that, that uh, he was just a really, really solid person. And uh, I also really admired his technical ability as a uh, judo practitioner and, uh, you know, wanted to be like that.
0: And so how long after did you continue practicing judo before you had your first leg operation?
1: I had, uh, so uh, from the beginning, I, I, I started judo in 2001. Frida Sensei was murdered in 2004. And then I had my first leg amputated in 2014.
0: And then just explain to listeners, like what happened there? Like how did that transpire?
1: So, um, starting in about 2008, I started having a lot of, uh, problems with my left, uh, foot and calf. It would get like excessively tired very quickly. Um, when I trained and then, uh, but it would come back right away. Like it was, you know, just strange. I thought like, you know, somehow like I was, you know, biasing that side or something with my stance or, you know, somehow with the activity I was using my left more than my right, I could just kind of write it off. And, but it progressively got worse to the point that like, instead of it just being tired after that short amount of time, it would look white and gray and almost like frostbitten. So we knew I had some type of circulation problem. And so I saw doctors for a while, and nobody gave me really a concrete answer. And um, then I went to a different hospital, and they were like, "You need a femoral to tibia bypass," which basically is they cut out a large section of your or or I mean, not necessarily a large section, but in my case, uh, femoral to tibia is a large section. That's from the top, you know, all the way from like your groin area to your ankle area. They took out a section of artery. And they replaced it with a vein from my same leg. They just put it in backwards, which I had no clue that it worked that way, but it does. Wow. (laughs) I know, right? That's insane. (laughs) And so um, they uh, did that. And then that held up for, you know, about a year. And then they uh, did like some patchwork to it and to the bypass. And that held up for a little while. But the problem is I have a... uh, uh, genetic disease. It's not hereditary, but it is genetic. Um, uh, my arteries are uh disease. I have something called Burger's disease and my arteries, uh, harden and occlude, uh, prematurely. So my arteries in the, you know, peripheral part of my legs, like down by my calves, kind of south of my knee, uh, you know, look like what you would imagine to see in somebody who is elderly or, um, you know, on the obese side. Hmm. And so, uh, the bypass ended up not holding up and it got to the point, like when they do the bypass, you have to have a good top to connect the the vein to that's now Mm -hmm. an artery and a good bottom to connect the vein to that's now an artery. And I ran out of good bottoms to connect it to. And so at that point, um, not having good blood flow to my foot, I developed wounds that basically just didn't heal. And then those wounds, um, you know, turned into, uh, you know, there was necrotic tissue, and then that necrotic tissue became infected, which um, then you have gangrene, and uh, which was very painful. You know, they had all kinds of medicines and everything like that. And my quality of life was just really poor. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't eating well. Um, I could barely make it to train. And when I did, it wasn't, you know, uh, it it wasn't the type of workout that you'd like to have. You were, you know, limiting yourself. And plus, you know, you shouldn't really be training on pain meds. uh, So you're not taking as much as you should. So you're in pain. And so then I made the decision that t- to have my leg amputated in 2014.
0: Was that something you came up with or the doctors had recommended?
1: Well, the doc, I mean, it was an inevit- It was an inevitability because eventually everything south of my knee would have died because of lack of blood flow. And the longer I waited, the more uh, significant of an amputation I would have had to have. Hmm. And so they did the below the knee first, thinking that everything's, uh, you know, north of of the knee wasn't diseased enough that it had to be removed, um, which ended up not being the case in the end. Uh, But no, it was definitely the doctor's uh, recommendation. And I was opposed to it at first, of course. Um, Because nobody, I mean, I don't think it's, you know. I don't think it's a real like settling thought to most people that, you know, you're going to go to the hospital and leave with less than what you came with. Man. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I was opposed to it for a long time, but the pain became so much that, you know, it was a, you know, when I finally did have it amputated, it was a blessing. Um, a blessing. Oh my gosh. I was in so much pain. And instantly when I woke up from surgery, uh, like, I mean, my entire, like, you know, mood was just a thousand times improved. I felt like, you know, uh, just, I mean, so, so much better. I mean, I barely even needed any pain meds after having my leg cut off because, That pain was nothing compared to what I was dealing with before having it cut off.
0: Trace, that something that's dying. Is that inducive? Like, or is that inflicting of pain? You would think it'd be the opposite. Like you wouldn't feel it anymore.
1: You know, a lot of people have said that to me and you don't have feeling in it. In that, like, hot and cold don't register the same or even pressure doesn't register the same, but at a point, you know, pressure like touching it, right. Doesn't register the same. However, if you put like a good amount of pressure on that, or there still is like a pain sensor in there to warn you like back off because you still could make this worse. Cause I mean, Not being able to feel it like that, you could easily create like a larger open wound or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, anything like that. I mean, it's, I mean, it's almost like the way, uh, when you hear about people with leprosy and how they, you know, can't feel their fingertips and stuff like that. And then they end up like, you know, smashing up their fingertips. And a lot of them don't have fingers because of that, because they can't feel in the end of, you know, in their digits like that.
0: It's crazy how it's uh it just a like obviously a reminder that it's a warning system like, hey, back up. There's something going on there. And so you didn't you weren't feeling those same kind of pains when you woke up from the surgery. And then I mean how how did you start to adapt to life with one leg and, and were you using a prosthetic and how like how did that go?
1: Well at first, um you can't because you have to wait for your stump. That's actually what they call it. I know that sounds kind of crude, but you have to wait for your stump to heal up and you have to get your, uh, excuse me, you have to get your staples out or sutures or a combination of. And then after that, you have to wait for that incision to heal up strong enough because you're going to bear weight pretty much right where that was, especially for a below the knee uh, amputation. Um, So it was probably between six and nine months before I was on a prosthetic. Um, so it was slow going at first, you know, moving around my house in a walker and, uh, you know, it just felt like everything was just like, took so much time and it took so much work. Um, but eventually, you know, got to the point that I could get a prosthetic and that made life a lot easier. And, you know, I just took kind of like, you know, my training attitude to physical therapy. And I just, you know, went at it with some enthusiasm and, uh, you know, I showed up to train and, uh, you know, six, nine months after having my leg cut off, you know, started working with the prosthetic three months from, excuse me, three months from there, I was walking on the prosthetic without crutches and, um, feeling good about it, you know, moving around well.
0: It's incredible that you are able to summon this inner fortitude of enthusiasm, you know, again and again. I mean, where, where does that come from for you?
1: I mean, for me, a big part of it is, uh, well, I mean, a huge part of it was the dojo. Um, I wanted to get back there. I really liked, uh, the people I trained with and I really wanted to keep training with them and keep learning with them and keep pace And so I always wanted to get back. I always had something to get back to. I always had a goal, um, you know, other than getting healthy, you know, I was getting healthy for something. So I could think about it like training. So I was training for something and then, you know, I'm a mathematician. So like, you know, by transitivity uh, you know, if I want to do judo, I got to be able to move around on my prosthetic leg. So really training for my prosthetic leg is training for judo and I want to get back to judo desperately. And so you just take that mindset into your physical therapy and, um, you know, what you put in, you get out. And so the harder you work, the, you know, the more it comes.
0: And then as you make it through this, the same thing happens on your other leg.
1: Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, on the other leg they didn't even go through the bypass uh situation because they just you know it didn't hold up on the left leg so they were like it's probably not going to hold up on the right leg so we don't want to put you through the trauma and so they amputated my right leg below the knee outright and um that again was pretty rough I was you know I was not looking forward to that I was really opposed to that because I was like you know I got it figured out on one leg now with the prosthetic and I'm doing good. And I think I can, you know, I'm starting to think that like, I can, you know, have an independent, meaningful life and, you know, get back to doing the things I want to do. And then right away, um, it's time to go through it again. And it's the whole, you know, another set of circumstances to, uh, you know, work with, but at the same time, you don't have a choice. Um, you can either adapt or you can not get back to the things you want to do because walking and being independent comes before doing wrestling or judo.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I mean, I'm going to be alive for a really long time. And I don't want to just sit around thinking about the days when I used to wrestle or do judo. I want to get back to doing that. And those are really the only two choices you have, you know, get back to doing the things you like doing or don't.
0: And to have that passion hanging out, uh, uh, kind of hanging out there as a carrot, seems like the, one of the key motivators for you. And you just think about all the people who are out there in the world who don't have something they're passionate about or they care about obviously that's been super important to you kind of as we wind this down and and i know you've had operations since then but as we kind of wind this down what's i guess what's the uh like if you were to speak to a school or something just like the biggest takeaway for you on how you've been able to navigate this is it come down to attitude and then how I mean, what a-
1: me, <clears throat> excuse me uh I, I didn't mean to cut you off sorry no go ahead man i mean for me it really comes down to like two things kind of is, um, the intensity of my approach. Oh, uh, sorry. The intensity of my approach. So I'm always checking that. Am I, uh, you know, am I giving it my best? Um, and you know, the other thing you got to watch is, you know, are you being safe? Are you getting ahead of yourself? Cause you want to give it your best because that's how you're going to make the best progress. But if you start going too hard, you're going to get a setback. So, you really got to watch the intensity of your approach. You need to go hard, but not too hard. And the other thing is, you know, living your life with, you know, like making sure that you're still living your life according to the values that you think are important and doing the things that you think are important. And what I mean by that is, you go into physical therapy, well, you can take your wrestling mindset, your judo mindset into physical therapy and, you know, remembering who you are, even when you have these, you know, situations where, you know, you might need to redefine yourself or, you know, you might need to uh, come to grips with, you know, who you are now. Well, I mean, through it all, I've been a wrestler, I've been a judoka, and you know, keeping that in mind has really helped me a lot, if that makes sense.
0: No, it does, and it's, it's just incredibly inspiring to me and to a lot of people, and I, I know you're a source of motivation for a lot of people out there, and hopefully through this podcast, we can, we can continue to spread that, and you're always welcome to come back on, man, because I know we're only scratching the surface, and I'd, I'd love to sit back I and would... talk judo with you sometime as well.
1: I would definitely love to come back on. This was a great experience, and I really appreciate you having me.
0: No, it's an honor, man. Thanks again. You have a great day. That's it for this episode, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. This episode was brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off on your next purchase with the promo code WCML at manscaped.com.